0: And though feasting is not listed as one of the times or one of the purposes that is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I think we can say pretty clearly that when you read your Bibles, we can recognize that there is a time to feast, a time to celebrate, a time to rejoice, a time to enjoy, and to give thanks for all of the goodness of the Lord. How sweet, how wonderful would it have been to be or to have been a guest in the house of Levi. When Jesus is there, when he's called Levi to follow after him, how great would it have been to be at that feast? Or how wonderful would it have been to be where Zacchaeus is there pouring out his heart and receiving the Lord. Yes, there were those who condemned the entire event, but how great it would have been to have been part of that feast, or how sweet it would have been, and this is a parable of course, uh, so not a reality like the first two, to be at the banquet that the father of the prodigal son threw for him when he came back to see the singing and the dancing and the rejoicing and the celebrating that took place there as the son is swept back into the family and the love of the father. These people were thankful. They were thankful for return. They were thankful for grace and thankful for forgiveness and repentance, renewal and restoration. And in their thankfulness, they, they celebrated. And the way that they gave thanks and the way that they celebrated was that they got everybody together and they got the food together and they feasted. They feasted. They feasted in the case of Levi and Zacchaeus with Jesus right there with them. They feasted with him. They feasted for him and in thanksgiving. When God preserved and protected his people from the evil plotting of Haman and the time of the book of, Of Esther. They celebrated the deliverance by having a feast, a feast of thanksgiving, a feast at which they not only had food themselves, but they sent and gave gifts of food to the people who were around them, and they called it Purim. And of course, if we were to look throughout the Old Testament, we would see very specific feasts that are prescribed by the law of God and prescribed in the law of God, and the way that you would celebrate those feasts, the day on which you would celebrate those feasts, and what you might eat on those particular feasts. Now, while the laws of God, particularly the laws pertaining to those feasts that we find in the Old Testament, are no longer binding upon us, And we can say that in the exact same way. You'll have to reference it back. I'm not going to say it all over again to the dietary laws in the same way that the dietary laws are not binding upon us. So these feast requirements that we find in the Old Covenant are are not binding on us either. Nevertheless, what I think is that there are still, just like we saw with the dietary laws, still wonderful principles, wonderful applications that we can make as we dig into some of these texts that we can be applying to our lives. In any case, that is our task today. What is it like to feast with God? What kind of things are involved in feasting with God? Because there is a time to feast, and I think this passage for us, this Deuteronomy 14 passage that we've got today, is really helpful in our task. All right, I confess to you that I find this passage really a fascinating practice as it is described here. I called it uh, feasting with God, although, of course, if you if you paid close attention to the reading, you probably noted that the word feast or feasting is not contained uh, within the passage itself. Uh, I suppose I. Could have called it banqueting with God or uh, some kind of uh, a a banquet that takes place uh, with God. I preached on this passage uh, I think was roughly 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more than 20 years ago. I preached on it in Baltimore and, and that time I titled the sermon Tailgating with God. And the the point there wasn't to be irreverent. It really wasn't. I I know that some of us, when we hear the word tailgating, have images in our mind of uh, drunkenness and revelry and being out of control. That wasn't the image I had in mind tailgating at the Baltimore Colts game uh, growing up. It was a flip in the tailgate down on my father's stepfather's old station wagon and enjoying the food with other people there, getting ready for the big event with the stadium in front of us. It was a celebration and it was great. And as a kid, you just wanted to be there. You wanted to be a part of it. Now, I think maybe 15 years ago, I preached this uh, passage in Ukraine and tailgating had no cultural reference point at all. Uh, I called it picnicking with God. Was the name of it there? To try to capture the idea with some images from our minds, from our experience that we can lay against and perhaps then get a sense of what this must have been like as we see it described here for us in Deuteronomy 14. So choose your image. Now, what I'd like to do today is allow me to set the stage, allow me to work through this passage and kind of make sure that we understand what's going on in this passage in particular, and then we'll draw out some of the implications from the passage that I think we can apply to our feasting as well. So the laws that are described in the book of Deuteronomy obviously look forward to the time when Israel will be in possession of the promised land. And of course, to this point, for the last 40 years, which is, of course, nearly two generations the people have basically been together in the wilderness and the tabernacle was in their midst going with them, right? So the, the presence of God in the tabernacle and the people were all in one, albeit large, mass group. Now, when they come into the land and they're on the edge of the land here, what God and what Moses recognize is that God is going to divvy up the land. He's going to allot portions to these various families. And in addition to them being then spread out over the the land itself, in addition to that, God himself will choose a place wherein he will dwell. So instead of the mobile tabernacle that travels in their midst, he will choose a particular place. And for the sake of ease, you know where that ends. That ends with Jerusalem. That's the, 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 the choice as it comes to its head. So he's going to choose a place where his name will dwell, and there will be the place of his, if you will, particular presence. So now the reality is Israel is going to have to travel to that place, and that's what this is looking at. So it's it's how does Israel who used to travel along with the tabernacle, what do you do once the tabernacle is established in a place and once you happen to live in another place that has been given to you by God? It produces a couple of questions. Uh, It produces the question of how do we approach God? How how do you get near to God? We've kind of known how to do that over the course of 40 years. What now when that change takes place? And it also produces another question, and the other question is, well, how do you take care of the people of God, in particular the ones who are listed here, the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, those who are in your towns, those who are in Jerusalem, and how do you take care of the sojourner and the orphan and the widow? How do you take care of the poor who are in the land? And the reason that that becomes a question is because for 40 years you've had manna. Right? For 40 years, you've had manna provided from the Lord, and you have had quail provided from the Lord, and water provided from the Lord. So that really isn't a question at that point. You, you don't have to provide for them because God is directly providing for them. Now what do we do in these circumstances? So this law that is set before us today is about tithing, and it is about worship. Now, while laws about tithing and giving are rather complex, we can keep the principle simple, at least with respect to the text that is before us today, that basically saying what God is saying to Israel is to bring 10% of their yield to worship, okay? So so 10% of your harvest I want you to bring to this place where I choose to set my name and have it dwell there. What is remarkable to me when you consider this passage is you are not to take the 10% of that yield, take it to Jerusalem, drop it off, and go home. Instead, you are to take a tithe of your harvest and you are to go to Jerusalem and you are to eat it, to eat it there. Now, presumably, you couldn't eat 10% of the yield, right? There's, there's a lot of yield in, in, in 10%, and presumably you couldn't eat all of it, so there was some leftover for the people in Jerusalem and for the, the priesthood that was in and around that place. Nevertheless, you ate some of it. And of course, the idea here is that if you were close to the place, that is to say close to Jerusalem, then what you did is you gathered up your household, right? And that's clear here. This is, we're talking about household, Households, and so you gather up your households, you get the kids uh, all loaded up on the cart, you get the produce, the harvest all loaded up on the carts or however many it took to do that, and you head off to Jerusalem. You take the grain and the wine and the oil, etc., with you. But if you were too far, if that was impractical because of the distance that you lived from Jerusalem, then you were allowed to take the produce, to sell it, to take the money, the cash in your hand, get everybody loaded up, go to Jerusalem, come to Jerusalem, and there you were to buy, what what the scripture says, whatever you want, whatever your appetite craves. Now, when we hear that, appetite craving. That's usually not a good thing, right? Israel craving according to their appetite is usually, that usually spells trouble. But in this case, that's what God allows them to do. In fact, the word for appetite there uh, is the word that is typically translated soul or life. Whatever you want, whatever you want in your heart of hearts, in your soul, in your life, you buy it there and you eat it there and drink it there. And let's be clear. The point here isn't to find, to get to Jerusalem, and find the cheapest thing you can find. You know, just, just any old thing will do. Get something cheap. No, this is a feast. This is a celebration. And you are to purchase that which is good, and that which you really love, that which is, in other words, valuable. Now, I say valuable it is proportional, right? When you're doing 10%, it's proportional. So for some people, 10% is going to be this amount. For some people, 10% is going to be this amount. So there's a proportionality that works out in this whole thing, but you buy it and you enjoy it there in the presence of the Lord because this is a feast. Now, let me say something at this point because some of you might be wondering, what do we mean here by wine and strong drink? Okay, grain. Okay, oil. Okay, ox and things like that. What about wine and strong drink? Well, wine is pretty much wine. Okay, pretty much what you would think of as wine, that's wine. It's alcoholic. Strong drink, though, uh, we're not talking about something like vodka or whiskey or gin because distillation hadn't been invented at that point. And so strong drink probably refers to some kind of a beer or a beer-like thing, we would recognize it as beer, and you are to bring those or to purchase those along with you. Now, just so you know, parentheses, there will be a sermon in a couple of weeks on some things, moderation things, uh, with regards to eating and drinking, and we'll get into uh, extremes of those things. But for now, put that aside because it's not part of this text here. Buy it, eat it, quorum Deo. A lot of you have heard that phrase from various reform sites, quorum Deo, eat it in the presence of God. Eat your stuff before the face of God. Quorum Deo is the Latin for that, and it is in the Latin translation of this text, that you should eat these things before the Lord your God. And in addition to that, you should remember the Levites, in particular those who serve God in your particular town. They don't have an inheritance. They don't have a portion in your place. And so, along with the sojourners and the widows and the fatherless, you've set aside every third year a portion that is designed to provide and to care for them as well. Now, presumably, there would be some type of rotating basis on that, so that everybody didn't put everything aside in one third year. But presumably, that was done on a regular basis to provide for those other people as well. So that's our text. Okay, that's what's happening in this text. This is what is commanded of Israel. And my question is, is there anything here for us? I mean, it's it's 3,000 years ago. Uh, There's no temple that we have now. There's no singular city to which we go. Uh, We've got a modern economy where it turns out that most of us are not farmers, right? So most of us didn't load up the trunk today and bring in a harvest to give as our tithe and our offerings, but is there anything here for us? And I really think that if we look at this text and if we look at other ones as well, There are a lot of things that we can draw from this. I'm going to give you four uh, principles that I think we can apply from this today. The the first is the one that I, I trust is the most obvious, and it dovetails with a lot of what we've said up to this point. The first point is this, give generously and share. This is a passage about tithing. It is a passage about giving. Obviously, it has lots to say about food and about eating as well, but it's a passage about tithing and giving. If you were to take this passage and put it in the language of Proverbs, perhaps a passage that many of you memorized at some point in the past, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. If you took it and you wanted to apply it in the New Testament context, you would see how Paul urges the Corinthians and each one of them to give as they have purposed in their heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? because God loves a cheerful giver, and just to be clear, God loving a cheerful giver and not wanting you to give reluctantly or under compulsion actually wasn't Paul's idea. The next chapter, chapter 15, verse 10, is about how you care for the poor in your midst, and it says, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, and in all that you undertake. Don't give begrudgingly. Don't share things with other people begrudgingly. Don't share your food begrudgingly with other people. Giving, as scripture constantly and continually points to us, giving is a heart indicator, and it is a heart shaper as well. It's an indicator and a shaper. This is what Jesus says, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a connection between these things, between giving and money and income and your hearts. And let me just give you one other passage that's a very well-known passage um, from the book of Malachi that addresses this. Malachi, years and years after uh, these instructions were given, God accuses the people of robbing him. They say to him, how are we robbing you? God says, because you're not bringing in the full tithe and you're bringing in as an offering all of these lame animals, and that's not what I'm looking for. And we read this from the Lord, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, it's not often, When God says, you can test me in this, but this is one of them. In giving, in sharing, in taking of yours and giving it to somebody else, this is one where God says, go ahead, you can test me in this and see if I'm true to my word or not. In the ancient world, giving and eating or giving and food are not two completely distinct categories. And I think that's important for us to remember so that this makes a little bit more sense to us. Okay, we we might be tempted to think of these things, well, either you can do a sermon on tithing or you can do a sermon about food and about feasting and about eating never the two shall meet because they're different things. But in the ancient world they're not different things. They're part of the same category. When you talked about what you gave, you gave of what you would have otherwise ate. Right? So you're giving your food away. Not always. We saw you can exchange it for money and do that as well. But then you still turn it back into food. Food's deeply personal. Money is important and we know that, but it's not so personal. But food is deeply personal. You know, you can imagine the kids saying, Dad, we're going to give all this away? We worked really hard for this. You know, we dug up the land, we took care of everything, we cheered when the first, whatever, grains uh, appeared, uh, when the first ears of corn, whatever it was, appeared. You can imagine the kids saying, we can't give that away. I said it to Lauren the other day, she was giving away food out of the garden, I was like, stop giving away food out of the garden, we worked really hard for that. So you can imagine exactly that thing, it's deeply personal when you've done it, when you're the one who's made it. And to the degree that we now separate these things into different categories, and we understand, again, modern economy, modern life, nevertheless, there's something lost there. There, There's an investment of ourselves, a personalness that is lost in separating those two things. So here's what I would say. Seize every opportunity you can to reconnect those things. These series on biblical theology over the course now and of the last couple of summers as well, one of the things I would love to see in all of our lives is increasing connections between things that we would otherwise keep as so totally different categories. And here in this case, you take every opportunity you can to be the person in your neighborhood who welcomes people by whatever, bringing over a pie, bringing over bread, bringing over wine, you're the person who bakes the cookies in the neighborhood for the kids. When the opportunity comes up to take the soccer team out for ice cream after the game, that's you. That's you. When the opportunity comes up to cut up the oranges and get out the Gatorade for the game, take that opportunity. Go and take opportunities to get on the list to provide a meal for somebody here in the church. List comes out, I confess, so... So. I need to confess this. I don't look at that list, okay? Nobody wants me to bring them a meal to their house, so I don't look at that list, so I'm not talking about anybody personal right now at all, but it doesn't have to be the usual suspects every time who are on that list. Beat them to the punch if you're not one of the usual suspects. Beat them to the punch. Be a person who gives food to somebody else who is in need. And if you can only do a small thing, then do the small thing as well. Look for opportunities to send gifts of food. We have one, and I know this is a small thing as well, but we have it with every third Sunday giving to the Colonial Neighborhood Council down the street so that they can give to people who are in need. Yes, it's a small thing. Yes, in and of itself, the cans that you put there won't change the world. But it's part of you saying, my heart is with those who have more need than I do. And so take advantage of the opportunity. Giving and sharing are addictive, and your heart grows as you do them. All right, second thing from the passage this morning. Celebrate or feast with fear and with joy. Now, if the idea of giving and the idea of eating may seem like different things to us, then surely so too, fear and joy. Those seem like different categories to us as well. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to be in your presence and be full of fear? Or do you want us to be in your presence and rejoice? And of course, the answer from God and the answer from this text is, yeah, I want both of those. I want both of those. If you look at the reasons, the rationale that is given in verse 23, the rationale is that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And then if you take a look down at verse 26 where the instructions are given for those who have come from afar and you shall eat therefore before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. When you came to that place, when you took that food, when you sat down on whatever it was, your blanket, your table there in the presence of God at the sanctuary, at the temple, you recognized a deep dependency upon the Lord and a deep reverence for the one who had provided for you. And so there was a sense of fear that accompanied that activity. The joy is that eating and that feasting and that tithing are markers of his love. They're tokens of his love and care in this world. They're evidence. When you eat them, when especially when you eat them in the presence of everybody else, your friends and your neighbors, and you're, you've got the tabernacle and, or the temp, temple in front of you. You recognize his love and his goodness. Now, how remarkable, how remarkable is it that having just given the dietary laws, which I'm sure Israel, like we, in looking at them, would have said, well, that's really restrictive, really put a lot of rules on us with respect to eating and what we can and what we can't, eat, how remarkable then that the passage that follows it immediately says, eat whatever you want, eat whatever your heart desires, whatever your appetite craves, the way that is translated here. Now, just to be clear, that's not intended to be uh, like a, a free day from the dietary laws. That's not the point here at all. But it at least communicates to us within the framework that God has established that boy, there's a lot of freedom, and boy, I want you to enjoy what I have given to you and what I have provided for you. In fact, to me, that feels very New Covenant-like. When we hear those words, eat whatever your heart craves, that's very much like words from the New Testament saying everything is now clean. Eat and enjoy what God has given you. God is pleased when we celebrate with feasting the occasions of our lives where his goodness has been especially evident. How amazing is it that God, who is the Lord Almighty, that God, who is a consuming fire, that the Lord, who is holy, 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 would command us saying, gather up your family, get your little ones, Bring a jug of beer and a bottle of wine and some things to eat and sit down in my presence and eat them. Now, I don't mean to be, again, light, flippant, irreverent, or unholy with that. That's what God commanded, it's what He commanded. Is that your God? It's not all that the Scriptures have to say about the Lord. But it's part of how the Scriptures unpack God for us so that we would know the depth of his love. That is who he is. There's there's two things that are combined here, right? Tithing is an exercise in self-denial. It's a giving up of something that is yours. And God says, thank you very much, I'll give that back to you. I'll give it right back to you if you will deny yourself and give it to me. Fasting will get more into this next week, okay? But you see the, the reciprocation there that takes place. Third thing, so give generously and share, celebrate and feast with fear and joy. Third thing is perhaps the simplest thing, give thanks. Give thanks. Giving the tithe for them, giving for us, is a way of saying thank you to the Lord, and thanks is appropriate for the ability to give. The tithe is predicated on two things. In the first place, it's predicated on the fact that everything belongs to the Lord, and everything you have has been given to you by him. And the second thing that tithing is predicated upon is that God has blessed your work. If you were able to give today, And whether you did that by dropping something in the offering plate or by doing something electronically, it's indication that God has blessed the work that He has given you to do. In particular, verse 24 is this idea: When the Lord your God blesses you. Now, in that verse, there are two problems, one cause. Okay, the two problems are a, it's too far, and b it's, uh, I, I can't carry everything. The one cause is the blessing of God. God has blessed the work of your hand, and you've got too much to do, or too much to carry to get it over to that place. And so you give thanks for the blessings given. And as you give thanks for the blessings given, again, note the reciprocation that takes place here right at the end of the passage that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. You've been blessed. Now you take and you give. You give it to the Lord. You give it to the fatherless. You give it to the widows. You give it to the Levites. And God says, okay, now in response to that, I'm going to bless. In response to your thanks, I am going to bless you again. And giving thanks, let's just say this, isn't something you only do with tithing you do it with your tithing uh with your giving but it's specifically what we should do before we eat because if for no other reason it's what jesus did right when he gave when he gave thanks he broke it he gave it to his disciples or before the feeding of the five thousand, he took the loaf in his hand and he blessed it and blessed it means he gave thanks for it he said thank you lord for these things do not underestimate. Kids, do not underestimate it. Parents, do not underestimate. Do not underestimate the value of saying whatever you want to call it, the blessing, grace before a meal. It is transformative. Look at the verse that's on the front of your bulletin. We've referenced it a couple of times from 1 Timothy. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God, The Word of God declares all food to be clean, and prayer. That prayer that you think is just a little thing, a little formal thing that you do, is not just a little formal thing that you do. It is a transformative way of giving thanks to the Lord. All right, last application. Feast with God. Feast before God. Feast, we come back to this, quorum Deo. This experience must have been great, and perhaps we listen and think that must have been great to have lived in those days when you could travel off to the temple, when you could be in that place. Brothers and sisters. our day is better. Our day is much better than this day. So the woman at the well was there with the one who was living water, and of course she had the question. And the question was in no small measure based on this text. Lord, which mountain shall we worship on? You know, our fathers, the Samaritans, they say you should worship, we should worship on this mountain here, whereas you, the Jews, you say we should worship on this mountain there. Lord, where should we worship? Where should we go to meet with God? And you can imagine Jesus saying, well, well, uh, not very far. Not very far because, as a matter of fact, you're worshiping with me now. You're here with me now. You are partaking of this water with me now. Brothers and sisters, we serve a living God. We serve the present God, and he is not far from us, but he is with us and in us as his temple. And to be sure, that is particularly true as we gather together for worship as his people as next week we will eat bread and drink wine according to his appointment at his table but it is also true where you are at table where you are there the Lord is with you where you feast there he is with you eating with you rejoicing with you to be feared to be thanked and to prompt invite someone else to this table as well. Get someone else to come along. Brothers and sisters, this God, this is who He is. He lives. Believe in Him. He is not far from us. Celebrate and feast with Him because there is a time to feast. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We are tempted in our lives where things are set up in very distinct categories to uh, make them exactly that and not appreciate that all things come from your hands and that as we eat, we're doing something that allows us to recognize your goodness and your presence with us, and the love that you've deposited into this world and the care as well. Help us to do that, Lord. And when the occasion is appropriate, when we have seen your blessing in our lives, your goodness in some particular way to, like Levi and like Zacchaeus, feast. Feast with you and give thanks. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right.